I've been preaching for over 40 years, and I've never preached a book or a series or a, even in one sermon out of the book of Esther, and that's where God has taken us this morning. The title of this series is Esther, Such a Woman as This, as, you know, but it really it says a woman for such a time as this. What man in here hasn't had a woman for t- such a time as this? I give my wife a tremendous amount of credit for success in ministry, actually. But my son Joshua um, made a profound statement, uh, coined this phrase uh, years ago, and I, it stuck with me. Without a good woman, most men would self-destruct. Would, would there be any honest men in here to... I see three. God bless you. So. <laughs> this is an amazing story. I'm not going to ask a show of hands, but would there be women in this congregation this morning that watch soap operas? One hand. One honest woman. I tell you... You, you don't need, I'm just messing with it. <laughs> Here's the funny thing about soap operas. My dad, God rest his soul, always yammered about soap operas. But when Dallas come on, if you said one word, he'd kick you out of his house. <laughs> it's a stinking soap opera. Every week, build on knots landing and on. And yes, man, oh man, my, my dad, I love my dad. He's a dandy, I'll tell you. But that was just too funny for me. This is a true story about an orphan girl who God used as a savior of her people, the Jews. Read it this week. If you've never read it, read it. It's an interesting story, the plots and the twists and how it comes out in the end. You know, Shakespeare never appears in his plays, but his presence is pervasive. Every act, every scene, every line of dialogue bears the imprint of his pen. He's the genius behind all the characters, each twist of plot and every poignant ending. And as far as dramas in Scripture are concerned, the book of Esther is an anomaly. From start to finish, God is never mentioned. You know, you try to wrap your mind around that because, you know, there are some books of the Apocrypha that was written between Malachi and Matthew and the the church fathers. Because God wasn't mentioned, they didn't canonize it. It's amazing to me that this book made it in the Scripture, but after we get into it, you'll, you'll know why. But like Shakespeare's play, every page bears the testimony of its author. Behind every scene, you can see the shadow of the Almighty directing from the wings. And more than any other biblical book, Esther is a tribute to the invisible providence of God. Although we actually never hear or see God in the story, we have an overwhelming sense of confidence that he's just off stage, cueing the characters and orchestrating the drama to preserve his people from a tragic ending. The book of Esther is often like the dramas played out in our everyday lives. For when enemies are at our heels and our end seems in sight, the Red Sea is never parted. Seldom when disaster's at our door are we ever warned by an angel. Seldom when we are in need of direction 
Does God speak to us through inanimate objects like he did Moses with a burning bush? And neither this happened with Esther as well. It's easy to see God in the miraculous, whatever that miracle might be. But it's not so easy to see him in the mundane, and that's where most of us live. We live without seeing handwriting on the wall or hearing thunder from Sinai. We live with God not center stage, but directing obtrusively from the wings, sometimes in a whisper, and sometimes he shouts. But his voice is always there if we listen. And this is all the more reason we need to be sensitive to his voice so you and I can be aware of the subtle ways that in which he works in our lives. And no book will sharpen our spiritual senses more than Esther. You and I should always be gaining a deeper understanding of God and the gospel. So before we get into the book of Esther, I want to take a few looks at God and, his, and the subject of God to be not to put God in a box or relegate him to an outline or a table of contents or just a reference. I think sometimes we have, we have done that with God. We have made him small. We've put him in a place where we can control him, but I'll guarantee you, you cannot control God, and we cannot describe and explain God in conventional wisdom in our finite minds because God's infinite. It's important to understand how mysterious God is if we're ever going to make sense of his mysterious ways in which he works in our lives. We need to explore the mind of God and his unsearchable judgments. Our searching of the mind of God is like a minnow surveying the ocean. At best, we'll only see what lies in front of us with our tiny eyes and we'll miss the great depths and breadth of the watery secrets as Isaiah the prophet wrote in 55, 8, and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to look at the will of God and his unfathomable ways. It's like the cold, dark depths of the ocean. The ways of God are often cloaked in mystery. It's an amazing thing. Every once in a while, something will float to the surface or whatever in the deepest part of the oceans that we've never seen before. The ocean is a mystery. Oh, the depths of riches. This is Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and fathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? The power of God is sovereign control. It's described in this doxology in Daniel 4, 34 and 35. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? These words come on the heels of a humiliating journey that took Nebuchadnezzar from insanity to recovery. Most powerful ruler on earth at his time and he would survey his kingdom and in arrogance. But God did this to him. He took that away and he made him somewhat insane and he'd go out and lived in the, the field with the beasts and ate grass. God took that sanity and wealth away from him to see who really is the throne of heaven, who's on the throne of heaven. 
So having been crushed under the mighty hand of God, the king finally acknowledges the pervasiveness of God's power. He came to grips with it. We need to explore the presence of God and his invisible providence. You've heard this word a lot, maybe providence. The word providence is derived from the Latin word providio. The prefix pro means before, and the root video means I see. We talk about video, that's where that comes from, from the Latin. As monarch over heaven and earth, God sees events before they happen. He can see the future precisely with clarity because he is the one who works events according to his perfect plan. I wonder if we'll be privy to that when we do get to heaven. Even while things appear to be out of hand on the earth, God is there working behind the scenes. Ecclesiastes 7, 13 and 14. Even though the seasons change dramatically, even though nations rise and fall on the world landscape, and even though economies tower to prosperity or topple to ruin, God never changes. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is God and his kingdom remains unshakable. Make no mistake about it. God will have his way, though he remains invisible. He is in no way indifferent. We need to see today the invisible workings of God through the power of the gospel. So before we unpack Esther, if you will, we, we look at the list. We look at the cast. Here are the characters of the book of Esther. The first is a king named Ahasuerus. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital. That was pretty much the known world at that time. The king is also known as Xerxes in the scripture. He was a king whose fame did extend from India to Ethiopia. And under his reign, thousands of Jews stayed in Persia. Some, a remnant, was delivered back to Israel, and they were led by Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The word Jews is mentioned over 50 times in Esther, showing that the spotlight is turned on these members of the caste. If you remember, because of their sin, unbelief, disobedience, God allowed the Babylonians to take the vast majority of Jews from Palestine to uh, Babylon, actually. So then the Persians come in, Darius, and then after him was Ahasuerus. takes a while to say that. So he was in charge, and God spoke to his heart, and he let some of them go. But like I said, the vast majority evidently liked Susa, and they stayed. So the second character in the cast is a queen named Vashti. She was a strong-willed, independent-minded woman. Who in here knows any strong-willed, independent women? Two people. God bless you. Anyhow... She refused to cooperate with her husband's drunken demands. And we first meet her in 1-9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, we've got a king. There's a heroine. And now, as in all stories, usually even 
with some of the storylines that Hollywood uses, there's a villain. The third character to make his stage entrance is a man named Haman. He's an antagonist, a wicked anti-Semitic officer in the king's court. He is a man of conceit, wealth, influence, and deception. We see him profiled in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and 10. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him, established his authority over all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So the protagonist upon which the plot turns is a godly Jew named Mordecai. We're introduced to him in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the capital, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who have been exiled with, with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. So Mordecai was a, a prominent Jew that sat in the gate every day. Haman would walk by. And everybody would bow to Haman but Mordecai because he didn't bow to anybody but God. So that, that's where that, the anger uh, and frustration came in Haman's life. And we read in this next verse that Mordecai raised the orphan Esther, who later turned out to be the heroine of the story. Verse 7, And he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Now the young lady was beautiful in form and face. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. She was a lowly Jewish woman who was dazzling in outer beauty as she was in her beauty. Actually, the name in Persia for Esther was Star. And later she ascended to the throne uh, after Vashti had a meteoric fall from the king's grace, which was all planned by God. So here's the plot of the book of Esther. It revolves around the survival of the Jews who stood precariously on the threshold of a holocaust. Now, we hear the word holocaust, we think about the one that Hitler brought into being. But since the beginning of time, uh, people have hated the Jews, and this was, this was another in that line of persecutions that they had. Mordecai's refusal to pay Haman homage enraged the petty leader so much that he had determined to make the whole Jewish population pay with their lives. He wanted to kill them all. And if his plan had succeeded, remember, the king had given him his signet ring. We find that in the story. So whatever he put that in wax on a piece of paper, whether it's a decree or whatever, it was the same as the king had given him power of eternity. He could take care of all the king's business. It doesn't say, but sometimes we try to read between the lines, which gets us in trouble, and sometimes it doesn't. But you keep this in mind. If Haman had been successful, he would have started in Susa, in Persia, and killed every Jew, men, women, children. And then he would have went through out the 127 promises from Africa to India and Ethiopia, of course, and he would have killed them all. That was, that was his plan. He hated them that bad. So, in a sense, that was, that was Hitler. That was Hitler's mind. It, Satan had put the same mind and heart in Haman that he had put in Adolf Hitler. So, word of their impending doom spread throughout the Jewish community. 
Can you imagine the fear? Verse 4, 1 through 3. Realizing that the fate of the people hung by a thread of Esther's relationship to the king, Mordecai appeals to the queen. Now, he asked her to do a courageous thing. He asked her to go to King Ahasuerus and tell him the plot and beg for her people's lives. You just didn't make appointments with the king. It'd be like us if we just showed up at the Vatican and wanted to see the pope. Probably, probably the only one getting there is Bill Snodgrass, but the rest of us were out of luck. But anyhow... That, that's, 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 you had to be in a position where he would take his scepter and point it towards you, and then you could come into his presence. Otherwise, they, they, they might have killed you on the spot. So this was the situation that she was in. So rising to the occasion of her need, God granted Esther the wisdom to devise a strategy that will eliminate the archenemy of her people. So she invites Haman and the king to a banquet where the king was vowed to hear what is troubling the queen and grant her a wish. So Haman the villain, he's elated. He is, he is thrilled that he is going to go have lunch with the king and the queen. But as he passes the defiant Mordecai, who again refuses to pay him homage by bowing to him, his elation turns to infuriation. And at the advice of his wife, Haman erects a gallows from which he plans to hang Mordecai. Then God provisionally uses insomnia to awaken the king and an awareness of Mordecai's past heroism. Mordecai, while he sat in the city gate, heard some people plotting against the king. He went and told the king and eradicated the threat, so he wanted to elevate Mordecai before that. So instead of Putting a noose around Mordecai's neck, Haman is ordered to drape a robe of honor over his shoulders. You ever had an enemy like that, that you wanted to bring revenge down, but the tables turn and you have to pay him honor? This is what happens. Haman comes to the royal banquet stewing over the sudden reversal of Mordecai's fate, but little does he realize the hot water that he's in. How many of us husbands have made some ludicrous mistake And we come home, and before we tell our wives, we don't realize the hot water that we're in. That happened to anybody? Lord, please help these people be honest. (laughs) Every man should have raised his hand. Some of you did, and I I appreciate that. What a, I could go on and on about this. I have heard some incredible, stupid things that men have done. How, how's it? Let, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me say this this morning. Here's a, here's a hypothetical situation. Your finances are okay, but you, you don't want to go in debt $20,000. So you hear a noise and you look out, and here comes your sweetie rolling in on a full dresser, Harley Davidson. How would that play? How many women think that's a good idea? Yeah, that's why now you're honest. That's a good thing. It's this kind of thing. So Haman, he, he goes in that. He's, he's still a little bummed out, but in the back of his mind, he thinks he's going to be able to hang old Mordecai. So this, this is what happens. Mordecai gets that rope put around him. He has to honor him. So Mordecai comes in really upset. The king asks the queen what the problem is. She said, there's a person within the context of your organization that wants to kill every member of my race. It infuriated the king, and he said, who's the man? And she points at Haman. 
7.10 says, In a sudden rage, the king sentences the arch-villain to be hanged, and hanged he is on the very gallows he had erected for Mordecai. Is that not justice? We, our stories don't always work out that way, but in this sense, that it did. Here's the message of the book of Esther. Keep this in mind as you read that this week. Though God is invisible, he is invincible. That's the message of the book of Esther. The invisible God who may appear to be absent is the invincible God who is working out his best plan. This was not only true for a young woman and her people in ancient Persia. That's true for you and I in this 21st century in which we live. You go back to Esther 7.10 and let your mind linger over the incredible reversal of fates, those of Haman and Mordecai. So the gallows stood like a seven and a half ton story, skeleton, gaunt and waiting. Haman had weaseled his way in and he was positioned himself in the government to obliterate the Jewish, obliterate the Jewish people. Unknown to the king's court, Mordecai was the number one on his list. He was the first list of political dissidents to be disposed of. I don't know how you are with grudges and how you are wanting people to get what's coming to them. But can you imagine in Haman's mind, I'm sure that he, he had pictured in his mind him himself putting that noose around Mordecai's neck and snugging that knot up and then walking off that platform and dropping that door or however they did it in those days and watching the life be choked out of his enemy. But God had other plans. He had to honor Mordecai, and then Mordecai, I'm sure, was there when his enemy was hanged. God's invincible providence turned everything around. And do you know why? Do you know why that he did this and why he used a young, inexperienced Jewish girl to save her race? Matthew 1.1 is our answer. This is a record of the ancestor of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Jesus Christ came as a Jew. Satan did not want Christ to come to earth and offers this great salvation, which is the gospel, it's the good news. So he tried to thwart that plan by having all the Jews killed, and God intervened, and it didn't happen. But that was his point. Satan had that in mind. We will stop this process. You know, Joe sings a song, The Power of the Gospel, and I was thinking about that when I was putting this message together, and I, I got to this part, and I was what all that means. Here's our application today. Sometimes I get, I get to thinking, Lord, what could the application be? We're, we don't live in 5th century Persia and about this history. But the fact is we can trace God all the way back to Genesis, to the Revelation, and he's in every book, every page, every paragraph, every sentence, if you look deep enough. We need to always respond to the quiet promptings of God. Because the same voice that has spoken to humans since Adam and Eve in the garden is the same voice that if we listen, speaks to us every day of our lives. Esther realized that God had raised her to a position of prominence for a reason. 
But to understand that reason, she had to ignore her palatial surroundings and listen to the small, still voice of providence. Can you imagine being the queen of a king who reigned over 127 promises? provinces, what she would have had at her disposal, the servants, the silk, the gold, the glitter, the jewels, all of this would have surrounded her. She had to lay that aside and listen to what God had called her to do. It's like many of us. God comes in our lives and he, he, he wants us to lay things aside so we can listen to his voice and do what he wants us to do, the promptings of God. Psalm 46 commands us to do the same thing. It's a terse command. It's only eight words. Yet these simple words are revolutionary. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. We, we need to say that many times every day because we get caught up in the whirlwind of life and we forget that. The New American Standard Bible translate, cease striving and know that I am God. Living Bible says stand silent. The Hebrew literally means let go and relax. What will happen if we do? We'll learn what Esther learned, that God, though invisible, is invincible. But we have to listen to hear that. As A.W. Tozer instructs, and I quote, Whoever will listen will hear the speaking heaven. This is definitely not the hour when men take kindly to an exhortation to listen. For listening is not today a part of popular religion. We are at the opposite end of a pole from there. Religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise and size and activity and bluster make a man dear to God. But we may take heart to a people caught in the tempest of the last great conflict. God says, be still and know that I am God. And still he says it as if he means to tell us that our strength and safety lie not in noise but in silence. And certainly that was true for the strength and safety of the Jewish nation under Hazarias, and certainly it is true for you and I as well. Because in that silence, as we rest in our great faith in Jesus alone, we feel his presence because our mind's not somewhere else. And in that silence, we know that he loves us, that we are always in his mind and in his heart, and that he believes in us, and has our back 24-7, and that he gives us power, hope, and purpose, and direction through the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 46, the world is being dashed apart by earthquakes and tidal waves, which we experience today. But now we've got a new element, the coronavirus that's entered into the world stage. In some, I'm sure that it causes panic. In some, it causes us to just want to stay home. I don't know how you're thinking. Maybe you don't think of it at all, but I, I think we have to think of it. I think we have to pray about it. So we've got this facing us in the world, and there's all other kinds of negative things. But it's how we face anything. We face anything on the solid rock of Christ that regardless of what happens, it's going to be all right. That's a hard thing for us to do in our minds and our hearts because we're pretty much spoiled, myself included. When Steve was in his wreck, it was the worst night of my life. I can say that in all honesty. Here's the dilemma. We talk about being caught between a rock and a hard spot. So here's Steve on the brink of death, uh, 14 units of blood or whatever they gave him. His head was just 
I'm not exaggerating. It was a speaker round. There says Stacy, um, ready to deliver Elijah. So that put me in a spot of prayer. Lord, he's your kid and he loves you. If you take him home, he's going to be in glory. I'm selfish. I don't want my daughter to lose her husband. I don't want that unborn child not have a father. This is the way we pray. But the only way that I got through with that is saying, Lord, your way, your will, just like the song says. And in our lives, for us to get through some of the things that we are put in, that is what we have to do, regardless of how hard that is for you. Because either way, it's going to be all right. And I think that's the way it is here. In the midst of that calamitous uncertainty, the psalm discovers one thing he can count on. He can cease his striving and worrying and anxiety because, verse 11 says, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. I can't do anything about this situation. I have to trust in you, God, or I will lose my mind. I think we get to that point almost. I don't know what your world's like, but maybe the world you live in is falling apart around you. We all could win Oscars sometimes in here. We could come out of the worst situations in our lives and come here and sit and smile and shake hands and drink coffee and eat donuts like nothing. there's no problem. It's not right inside. A lot of times we're black with sin inside when we come in here and praise God, I'm glad that you came. But here is the place to deal with that. If you come in with a burden or an unconfessed sin, for heaven's sakes, don't leave with that. Leave it here. That's what he expects us to do, actually. Hopefully you get to the point where you take care of it immediately after it happens. Or you might be facing a life-threatening illness or major surgery. Your body may be twisted with debilitating pain. You may carry unbearable emotional stress home with you from work. And if you're a student, maybe you're piled under homework and it's become a blur to you. Or maybe you suffer from a fractured relationship, one you've tried to restore, but you just can't fix it. Or maybe... Your career is uncertain or your job security precarious. Maybe there's a moral war you're struggling with. You've struggled with this same sin for years. You, you think you've got it beaten. It flares its head up and attacks you again. The old nature is a terrible adversary that we fight every day of our lives. Whatever mountains are crumbling around you, I ask you to take the high ground this morning and stop striving. Initially, just be quiet. Don't say anything. Listen to the whisper of God behind the roar of your circumstances. And you can hear him if you listen, even in the whirlwind. But you have to be still to listen. And then ultimately, be convinced that God is real. That he does have his best interest for me. Eventually, God may change your circumstances, but in the meantime, he wants to change you to be able to endure, buck up, work through the circumstances that he has you in at that time. He's working around the scenes for your highest good, Romans 8, 28 through 30 tells us. And I truly believe that our hope 
is in Christ alone and in that glorious power of the gospel. You know, I, I talk a lot about coming to Christ, but it's the most important thing I talk about. <laughs> I could stand here all day probably. I'm not that funny, but I could probably do a comedy routine or show you three or four videos or tell you some great stories. That's well and good when they're in their proper place. But the most important thing you'll ever hear from me is that you need Jesus Christ in your life, that you, you need to make that commitment. Whether, whether it's on your knee, whether it's standing up, whether it's laying down, don't matter. It's the fact that the Holy Spirit has knocked on your heart's door and you're not turning him away that you're saying, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I know that. Forgive my sin and come in and be my Lord and my Savior. I confess and I repent. I want to change my life. And then you go on and you, you change your life. That's the point. When you die, when you die, when God stops your heart, it doesn't matter if you even are a member of a church. It doesn't matter that you've given millions of dollars away to charity. The only entrance into heaven is if Jesus Christ is in your heart. So that's my prayer. It's emotional to me because I, I fear that not everybody in here is. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I am. But nonetheless, on that day, when I stand before God and give an account, the first thing, he already knows it, but he's going to say, did you do tell my people about me? Did you tell them how to get into the kingdom? Did you tell them how to live? That's, it's the most important thing I say. Lord, I love these people. And I know you love them as well. And you stand ready to forgive us. You stand ready to welcome us into your kingdom. So I pray this morning, Lord, before we leave this place, that we're all your kids. And I have no way to know that, but you do. So Holy Spirit, as you knock on hearts, uh, I just pray that we respond. And I'm sure there's many of us here with, in the context of the kingdom maybe that's got a couple things we need to discuss with you, a couple things we need to confess. Maybe we've held a grudge towards somebody. Maybe we have ill feelings, whatever. But you illuminate it and you show us what it is. So just help us this morning to, to take care of that, that we all might leave free and in peace. Thanks, you, thanks again, God, for loving us. Appreciate you. Love these people. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.